0: Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia.
1: This is Delfina Govia, your busy business boss, executive, strategist and transformational leader whose mission on this show is to educate, engage and energize the global community on topics of sustainability and ESG. Folks, today we're going to do something a little bit different, but not too totally different since I have uh, done something similar before, which is introduce you to another show on the Oil & Gas Global Network. As most of you know, Oil & Gas Global Network is the largest network of oil and gas podcasts in the world. We are in every single country on the planet with millions of listeners, and we have about 15 shows. And today, particularly, I'm introducing you to Oil and Gas Geopolitics with Jordan Driscoll. Jordan is brilliant uh, and entertaining, and I listen to his show regularly, and I was recently going backwards to some older shows that he has recorded. And I came across one that was recorded on September 26th and it's called 10 recent geopolitical events with impact on the energy industry. And I was listening to that episode. It struck me how it was almost as if he recorded that episode for airing on this show here, ESG energized. He covers topics starting with the, uh, Crisis of conscience speak speech that President Jimmy Carter delivered on July fifth back in nineteen seventy nine, where he first outlined the Department of Energy and import quotas and the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and even talked about alternative energy. He covers the Chernobyl and Fukushima nuclear disasters that have negatively shaped our public perception of, of nuclear power today, still persists today, our our negativity towards that power source. Uh, he talk, also talks about the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Climate Accords, and a f- number of other things. And of course, you know, Deepwater Horizon is also included in there. So I really hope that you enjoy listening to this episode. I know that you will. And as an added bonus, next week, I'm going to have Jordan come into my studio and he and I are going to record an episode that talks about this episode. So you can get more of his thoughts and commentary and even my thoughts as well on this list. So sit back and enjoy, with no further ado, Oil & Gas, Geopolitics with Jordan Driscoll's 10 Recent Geopolitical Events with Impact on the Energy Industry.
0: Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. And let's get into it. So tonight I've got my, um, I've got the usual stuff. we got the office that uh, sort of Nantucket medium blend here. I'm going to have a little sippy sip or inaugural sip. Mm. Tasty. Excellent. Um, it's actually the second time I'm recording this episode. I got about 15 minutes in last time and then got um, a phone call because I forgot to put myself into Do Not Disturb. And so uh, that ruined the whole take. And it was going to be a pain to, because right where it interrupted it, was going to be hard to <clears throat> try and record a separate segment and splice them together. It was going to be a pain. And I don't like uh, doing a lot of editing like I do any editing. I don't, but I don't like having to um, have my producers do a lot of editing. Um, and primarily not out of love for my producers, but primarily because um, in fact it's quite a lot of paperwork on my end. And so I usually just try and knock these out in one take and, and that's that Trying. That's how I save myself paperwork. Um, anyway, so now we're just gonna, we're going to this take two and, uh, yeah, we'll just, uh, see if we knock this out first try. Anyway, let's get right into it here with some housekeeping. So, uh, first off this past weekend, as I mentioned previously, I went to a wedding for, uh, one of my, um, one of my employees, uh, Kylie, formerly Miller, uh, now Bolton. She's the, um, um, I head of sales over here, and it was a country formal wedding, which I was not really sure what that was going to look like. I don't know what that, uh, that, that dress code is, so I just assumed that I should dress up like a moderately successful riverboat gambler. And uh, yeah, it actually worked out pretty well for me, if I'm being honest. It was pretty solid, so there we go. Uh, also, shout out to Trey Gal for the very kind review on the Apple Podcast app. Uh, as always, I deeply appreciate it. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to leave a review, please do so. If you're not enjoying the show, then, <coughs> you know, go go do something else. Go do something else that you like to do. Uh, life short. Find something you like. All right. So if you have any questions or comments, as always, for the show, you can always write to me either on LinkedIn or at my email, jordan.driscoll at O-G-G-N dot Look forward to hearing from you. And... um Really, the last thing here is, uh, and I often joke about how this uh, this show is the most uh, inappropriately named show in the entire OGGN network, to the point that I'm literally trying to get Business Daddy Mark Corps to let me change the name. Um, and it's actually a little bit of a funny story, just to go off on this for a second. When when he brought me on and wanted me to host the the geopolitics show, I had said, and and Mark gave me an unacceptable amount of latitude in doing whatever I want. I told him I wanted to be able to swear on the show. He said, okay, fine. It's pretty much like mine and like one paid podcast that that have any swearing. And I said, no, I need to be able to swear. Yeah, it's very important. Uh, two, you know, my format was gonna be different. We're gonna be doing all the um the interviews it wasn't gonna be a full-time thing, all that sort of stuff. He's like, Yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. Just whatever you want, you can do it. Um, And so it gave me a lot of latitude. The one thing that I actually got pushback on was the name of the show. Uh, It had been determined by someone in the network that it needed to be called Oil and Gas Geopolitics for SEO reasons or website domain reasons or something. I can't remember what all the the specific uh, reasons for it were. And um, I said, well, I really would call it something else like Jordan's Insanity Roundup or... You know something, something fun, something punchy. Diplomatic immunity with Jordan Driscoll or something. I don't know. Um, but I was—that was the only thing that I was given any kind of pushback on. Was uh, was the name of the show? It had to be this for some sort of algorithm-based reasoning, uh, supposedly. So anyway, we've gotten to the point now, though, that uh, we have a large enough audience—all 15 of you—that. Um, that the business daddy is actually seriously entertaining my desire to rename the show to something. The format of the show will not change. It's still going to be just me doing whatever it is I do here every week, but I do want the name to be something else. And I'm sort of leaning towards like maybe, uh, I don't know, Jordan's story time or something like that. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what it ends up being probably shooting for maybe um, towards the end of the year. We'll spruce it up and do all that. But I do think, and most of you guys who have commented have often said, you know, you really enjoy the show, but uh, it's loosely oil and gas, and it's sort of a weird melange of history and context and politics and all these other things that it's just, it's very hard to describe. And and also, sponsors get very skittish with the name geopolitics. They get very, very nervous about that. Um and so, yeah, I think, I think change in the NBA. But so we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. That's what I think we're going to do. Um, anyway, that being said, sometimes, for a lark, I like to throw you guys a curveball and actually talk about geopolitical crises that directly relate to the energy industry. And so to keep you guessing, tonight we are actually going to talk about 10 interesting events in recent history that have had lasting effects on the energy sector. So, got ourselves a little top 10 list here. Now, these are in chronological order, not um, order of importance. And likewise, these are certainly not really the top 10 most important things that have happened geopolitically to oil and gas. I just think they are 10 very interesting things that have had impacts. And they're the things that I wanted to chit-chat about tonight. So, it's like a micro deep dive, but it's sort of a shallow dive 10 times we're going to do here. But I think this will be a fun one. So, we'll say uh, Number 10. 1979, Jimmy Carter's malaise speech. The so-called malaise speech, also more formally known as the crisis of confidence speech, since he never actually used the word malaise, was delivered by U.S. President Jimmy Carter, 15 July 1979. Now, Carter had initially been scheduled to deliver his speech on the 4th of July, as was often his tradition to do so. But at the last minute, he canceled his television appearance, retreated to Camp David without any kind of explanation for 10 days. And on the 10th days, tenth uh, day, like a less inspiring Jesus, he rose from Camp David, threw on his finest cardigan, sauntered in front of the cameras, and delivered a classic rural Georgia Old school Baptist hellfire and brimstone sermon about how the entire energy crisis in America was just as much about our over reliance on OPEC as it was about our materialism, turning away from God, lack of prayer, and in an odd turn, about swearing too much. Well, fuck me, Jimmy. I've never felt so seen. Um, At any rate, President Carter called for a number of things. He called for the creation of the Department of Energy, import quotas, alternative energy, even before it was cool. I'm looking at you, Al Gore. Uh, The creation of a strategic petroleum reserve, and of course, the infamous career-making for Sammy Hagar, 55-mile-an-hour interstate highway speed limit cap. Now, for a very small window of time, the American population actually responded surprisingly well to this speech but after Carter fired a number of cabinet members and uh, the general public started to really reflect on everything Carter had said they realized that they actually quite liked consumerism and they quite liked their materialism I mean hell we're well on our way to the 80s which is the capital of consumerism and materialism and they'd also realized they'd just been bitched out by a man who lived rent-free in a literal mansion paid for by their actual taxes and once those realizations sunk in, the mood started to turn. Carter's popularity plummeted, causing him to lose the following election to Ronald Reagan by a landslide so large that it could be felt on the Richter scale. But after several of Carter's energy-saving proposals from the uh, Malay's speech, those would end up sticking around and affecting U.S. energy policy and the industry for decades to come. Mm. Here we go. Number 9, the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. The Ukraine, much like your great-grandmother, is the sort of thing that you only really hear about when something quite bad has happened. Nuclear power has always been the promise of cheap, efficient energy of the future, but it's always been sort of overshadowed by the terrifying shade of a mushroom cloud. Now, if you're anything like me, <clears throat> Dashingly handsome, a creative genius, well endowed, incredibly intelligent, and my one defining characteristic, unbelievably humble, then you would agree with me that the Soviet Union of Socialist Republics was a sort of a patchwork nation of mediocrity, appallingly bad economic tenets, astonishing corruption, and about as inspiring and hopeful as a piece of liquidified sheet metal. I really don't like the USSR, and it's always seemed to me like a total mess of a nation from the word go. Still, in the 1970s and the 1980s, it seemed like the Soviet Union was going to make an honest go of cheap nuclear power for the people of the workers' paradise. It was simply a matter of when, not if, a disaster would happen, and in 1986, the reactor at the Chernobyl power plant went into a meltdown, and exploded. We all know the story. We've probably seen the show. Now, the initial reaction of the Soviet government was naturally to try and cover it up, saying initially that nothing had gone wrong and everything was fine, and then eventually admitting that there had been a mining accident, of course, and then finally, after radiation alarms at a Swedish power plant over 600 miles away actually went off due to the amount of fallout drifting across the continent of Europe, Finally, the premier of the Soviet Union, who I'm assuming had just been busy giving a TED talk on how it was just downright disgusting that human beings could have things like wants and dreams and desires, finally authorized the following 20-second statement to be read on state TV, and I quote, There has been an incident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. One of the nuclear reactors was damaged. The effects of the accident are being remedied. Assistance has been provided for any affected people, and an investigation commission has been set up. End quote. That's it. Period. Conversation over. Now, between stories of workers dropping dead of cancer and radioactive exposure, women's having abortions in record-setting numbers in Ukraine uh, to try and prevent birth defects from radiation poisoning, and dangerous levels of radiation being detected all across Europe— it effectively put another nail in the global coffin of public opinion for nuclear energy. Number eight, the 1997 Kyoto Protocol. So the Kyoto Protocol is an international treaty designed to commit the signatory countries to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and preventing any dangerous interference with the climate systems. Now, no matter where you stand on the subject of climate change, the core idea of releasing fewer greenhouse gases into the air isn't necessarily a bad one. The problem with the Kyoto Protocol, however, was that while countries in the European Union and the U.S. were mandated to take all these very expensive measures to reduce emissions, it defined certain other countries as developing nations and exempted them from having to take the same expensive steps or gave them much, much, much longer runways to accomplish those goals. One of the countries who managed to get themselves listed as a developing nation was the People's Republic of China, which is ironic since they already had one of the world's largest economies even back then. Either way, President Bill Clinton, who was evidently needing a win easier than getting Monica Lewinsky cornered in the Oval Office, signed the Kyoto Protocol, but US law requires any treaty that the country enters into to be ratified by the Senate even back then the Senate didn't agree on much between the democrats and the republicans but in a shocking display of bipartisanship the kyoto protocol was unanimously rejected by the bird hagel resolution 95 to 0 the basis being that countries like china would be getting a free pass while shackling american businesses with huge economic uh burdens for meeting these goals, and that would be an unacceptable situation. And that is very true. That's very correct. And the fact that both parties unanimously agreed to it is simply amazing. Now, of course, this sent the United Nations into an absolute meltdown, nearly a full-fledged civil war, although Because it's the United Nations, the Civil War was a lot less Robert Downey Jr. versus Chris Evans fighting over the moral and ethical implications of super beings' freedom of movement and more like Russell Brand and Captain Jack Sparrow getting into a slap fight over shades of eyeliner. At any rate, this would lead to a domino effect of Canada, Russia, and Japan all withdrawing in 2011 from the Kyoto Accords and people still bitching about it today. Okay, number seven, the 2000 through 2001 California energy crisis. Now, we've already spoken at length about this in the infamous scandals Enron edition episode. In short, California deregulated their energy market and the fine people at Enron decided to make a shit ton of money by causing rolling blackouts, citing capacity shortage and jacking up prices uh, for power by over 20 times their pre-regulated prices hey, Republicans, if you ever want to know why Democrats are always up in your corporate shit, trying to regulate your companies, it's, it's that shit right there. That's that's why they do that. At any rate, due to the vagaries of interstellar law, virtually nothing could stop Enron from gaming the system until the company collapsed under the weight of its own gross overindulgence later on in 2001. Now, probably my favorite comment in this whole crisis is the extraordinarily condescending one from an energy Uh, trade executive at Enron, quote, crazy California Democrats can fucking get their money back jammed right up their ass at $250 a megawatt hour once they learn how to vote. Great job, lads. No possible way that'll come back to bite you in the ass and send you to federal prison. Cheers, boys. Number six, the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Now, British Petroleum, whose business holdings and business model seems to be the same as the fictional candy company Bertie Botts Every Flavored Bean from Harry Potter, wants to be involved in every possible oil play on the planet from the U.S. to Ukraine and all the way up every single industry vertical they can get their corporate hands on, a real jack-of-all-trades. Now, following the oil spill, they start off sensible, making the best calls they could and desperately trying to contain the situation that they found themselves in. Anytime an industrial accident happens, it's always a tightrope for public relations, especially in the energy industry. As within the first few days um, after the uh, event wore on, the BP executives started to make weirder and more non-secular statements, like CEO Tony Hayward saying that, The oil spill is relatively tiny, you know, in comparison with all the oceans in the world. What? Well, okay, that's like somebody coming over to my house and spilling an entire gallon of milk in my kitchen. Yes, compared to all of the kitchens on planet Earth, this is a small amount of spilt milk. But if you spill a gallon of milk in my kitchen, I'm still going to be pretty pissed off. Uh, It's still quite a lot for that space. Um, or you have uh, CEO Tony Hobart's uh, other fine quote when the British Prime Minister was calling for a safety inquiry and he said, Can't I just get back to my regular life now? <sighs> huh? <laughs> like, you're the CEO of a company that's having a major crisis and it's, what, interfering with your fucking tea time? Then you've got COO Doug Suttles, who when questioned about the nature of the oil spill, pulled the classic Bill Clinton defense by saying, well, the accident really depends on how you define what an oil spill really is. What? Well, I would assume an oil spill would be exactly what it fucking says on the tin, isn't it? You know, anytime oil is spilled someplace, it's not supposed to be. At any rate, it was a public relations nightmare. The BP board fired the CEO, they hired a new managing director of public relations and started a $50 $50 million public relations campaign to try and repair their shattered image, but it was it was already too late. President Obama, Prime Minister David Cameron, and even the righteous might of Ted Turner couldn't be stopped from lambasting the entire oil and gas industry, something that we to this day still feel. Number five, the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster, or possibly known as Dr. Evil's thought experiment of, what would happen if we were to put, if we were to massively push nuclear power on a country located on the ring of fire with constant volcanic and tsunami and earthquake activity, which also happens to be the only nation in the history of the world to be twice attacked with nuclear weapons? Well, you know, when you put it like that, it really seems like this was a somewhat inevitable outcome. At any rate, prior to the disaster, some 30% of Japan's energy came from nuclear power, something that was understandably a bit of a touchy subject with the locals. Now, following the disaster, recent polls show that over 80% of Japanese people are against nuclear power, with citizen action groups aggressively opposing the restarting of the reactors and demanding a denuclearized Japan. They will even try to and prevent the U.S. from having naval ships come to port that are nuclear-powered vessels, like aircraft carriers or attack or ballistic missile submarines. They just don't want nuclear things around their country, and understandably so, all things considered. At any rate, this also provided yet another global anti-nuclear campaign. It gave that campaign just one more high-profile fuck-up that they could hang their hat on. Number four the 2014 to 2021 Brazilian car wash scandal. Now, Brazil is a country that is known for a number of things. There's the rainforests, there's the uh, impressive Brazilian waxing regimen that we all appreciate, and of course, there's the famous come-at-me-bro Jesus statue in Rio de Janeiro. Now, lately, it's also become famous for Operation Car Wash, a bribery scandal. Now, now, look, I, I know what you're saying. Being surprised by a bribery scandal in a Latin American energy company is like being shocked that Paris Hilton was ever involved in something as tawdry as a sex tape. But here we are, and yes, she was. And also, it was poorly lit. That's beside the point. At any rate, in 2014, police uncovered evidence of a massive money laundering scheme at a small car wash in the national capital of Brasilia. A tiny thread that would initially pulled, everyone assumed was just going to lead to some sort of a drug ring, or maybe a prostitution ring, or something of that ilk. But as the investigation wore on, it led all the way back to the top of the state-run oil giant, Petrobras. And it even went past that to the office of the past three Brazilian presidents, some of whom would wind up in prison while others are still defending themselves on trial as we speak. In short, a cartel of construction companies conspired to fix the rates for businesses and agreed to alternate who would get the lowest rate and get the business between contracts, ensuring that every member of the cartel got their beak wet. But they would all massively overcharge, ensuring that no matter who got it, they all managed to walk away with a huge amount of money. Likewise, they would then take that overcharge, slip both Petrobras and government officials a kickback, launder the money through a number of uh, various organizations, including car washes, ironically, because I guess they were watching Breaking Fucking Bad, and um, then pay themselves out. Now, we are not talking about a small handful of bad actors here. We're talking about over $10 billion in bribes in a decade, 430 people indicted so far across 18 different companies and 11 different countries in South America, which has caused a massive wave of ethics scrutiny in the global energy industry. Unless, of course, you're in South Africa and work for ESCOM, in which case you guys are fucking bulletproof. Okay, moving on. We've got number three, the 2015 Paris Climate Accords. The Paris Climate Accords are sort of the mark to follow up to the previously mentioned Kyoto Protocols. The general idea was more or less the same, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and combat climate change. In general, not a terrible idea. The biggest difference between the Paris Climate Accord is, uh and the Kyoto Protocols is that the Paris Climate Accords had way less teeth than the Kyoto Protocols. There was no real enforcement mechanism in place. President Obama's delegation were even given instructions not to sign the accord if the word shall, which is the magic boogie word that makes something legally binding, if the word shall was included, they were instructed not to sign the accords. That being said, even without any kind of enforcement mechanism or any real teeth to the document, um, President Trump in 2017 decided it was something of a problem. He said it was putting the company at a the company, the country at a permanent disadvantage to the rest of the world and that they undermined U.S. independence. It was a bizarre wedge issue for President Trump to double down on effectively because the Paris Accords let you set your own targets. The language was softer and more fuzzy than your grandmother's Afghan. It had language like Quote, member countries should do their best to peak greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible. Do your best? That's the kind of thing you tell a five-year-old who sucks at coloring inside the lines. Just do your best, love. It really doesn't matter. That's the legal equivalent to participation trophy language. Who the hell cares if we're in the Paris Accord at that point? Needless to say, Trump, who... Uh, was on something of an Enron-level document shredding kick, decided to trash the agreement, and uh, Republicans cheered like Trump had just personally stormed the beats of Normandy and body-slammed Adolf Hitler himself. Meanwhile, the Democrats nearly died from multiple Trump-induced brain aneurysms before hurling themselves into the sun in a fit of rage. But most Americans were just downright perplexed, with 75% of Americans across party lines supporting the Paris Accords Yeah, it it was just an odd thing, right? I mean, the Paris Accords had the same legal power as a sign that you put on the side of your car that says that this van's a rock and don't come knocking. It was just an odd thing to throw down on. Naturally, of course, China took the chaos as an opportunity to claim the moral high ground and throw some shade by saying, we remain committed to the Paris Accords because unlike the United States, we honor our agreements. Ah, yes, yes. Thank you, China, for throwing that in there nicely done. Either way, by February of 2021, President Biden and the U.S. had rejoined the Paris Accords, but the twisted irony of this is the damage was already done. During the time between the U.S. pulling out of the Accords and the U.S. rejoining the Accords, during that handful of years, over 20 states had individually decided to pass laws much more stringent and demanding than anything in the Paris Accords themselves. Meaning, we'd actually have less climate change regulation to deal with if we had just stayed in the damn thing from the start. Number two, the 2018 Iran nuclear deal, also known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Okay, so in 2015, the JCPAC was created between Iran, China, the United States of America, the United Kingdom, Russia, France, and Germany. And the general idea was that Iran would limit their nuclear activities to power generation only, allow considerable inspections to ensure that no nuclear weapons were being built, and in exchange the other countries would agree to reduce the level of international sanctions that Iran had been operating under for decades. It was Naturally, a contentious agreement and reactions were mixed, to say the least. In the West, it was by many lauded as a triumph of diplomacy. Eh. Um, Iran insisted it was only a matter of time before the U.S. would breach their deal because the pig dog Americans evidently couldn't be trusted, which, sadly, they were a little proven right, sort of, in that regard. And China believed that it would be the start of renewed relations with Iran and the Chinese people, and unfortunately, that one has quite come to pass. Now, I have my issues with Trump, but I will agree with him uh, on this issue. The Iran nuclear deal was not great. Sure, when you strip away all of the political rhetoric, it wasn't an Armageddon-inducing disaster that he claimed on the campaign trail that it was, no. But to be fair, it was not a good deal. It was not some sort of a silver bullet that solved the solution to the Iranian problem. Now, what I will say is that perhaps it might have been a starting point, much like the Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel. They didn't actually do all that much to bring peace, but they did open the door to an eventual peace and partnership between Israel and Egypt. The reason, in my opinion, that the Iran nuclear deal was, Wasn't great, is well, there's actually lots of reasons, and most of them are too numerous or boring to get into right now. But chiefly among them is Iran itself. Iran's insistence on the U.S. and the West and how terrible we all were, and how we were going to for sure 1000% fuck them over, and how vocally they said that even during the negotiations sort of created a self fulfilling prophecy. Because if you're Donald Trump and they've been bitching about this. Uh, impending betrayal ever since the beginning, you kind of look at it and go, okay, yeah, fuck it. If you guys don't value it, then neither do them we. I can get that. I can follow that train of thought. Iran was not fully committed. They were uh, doing, at best, a half-assed job. And maybe we could have gone in there with a better deal. I think we certainly should have tried. But the bottom line is, Iran was the core issue here, right? They didn't want this to work, or at least the Ayatollah did. And I think probably the rank and file Iranian people probably quite very much wanted it to. Uh, At any rate, my general thought is that something would be better than nothing, but it still wasn't a good deal. It just wasn't. And in that regard, I agree with Trump on that one. Now, do I think something is better than nothing? Yes, I do. But the shredding of the Iran nuclear deal caused a massive shift in the geopolitics of the Middle East, causing historic enemies, Russia and Iran, to become extremely close in a way that they previously had not been. And it even opened the door for China to boost their relationship with Iran tenfold in a way that simply would not have been possible if the U.S. had still been sitting at the table. Number one, the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine of course. Now, I've already talked about the Ukraine war on this program at length, so I'm not going to rehash all of that just now. If you want to know what I think about the um, Ukraine war, feel free to hit up those episodes. Russia, even as far back as during the Soviet Union, has been a petrol state. Pretty much the majority of their state's income comes from a, uh, from oil and gas. They have a shrinking population, a smaller tax base, The sale of oil and gas is absolutely critical, and there's nothing new or mysterious about any of that. I mean, we all know Russia has had a stranglehold on European gas markets since the 80s, but um, I'll tell you what is quite mysterious. What what really, what's really mysterious is that just a year before the invasion of Ukraine, there were massive untapped oil and gas fields discovered in the Crimean and Donbass regions of Ukraine. And what's more mysterious is that, given Ukraine's previous position as a Soviet state, it already had tons of infrastructure for transporting natural gas via pipelines to the West that could have very easily been recommissioned to exploit those resources. And and something else that's interesting is that even in the months leading up to the invasion or the Special military operation, as the Russian state likes to euphemistically call it, companies like Shell and BP and Chevron were lining up to begin exploiting these new fields, opening up the European market to an entirely new source for oil and gas completely unattached to Russia. But that's probably just one big coincidence and entirely unrelated for Russia's decision to invade, and probably best not to give too much thought to on this episode. So there we go. There are 10 geopolitical issues uh, or events that affected the oil and gas uh, industry in recent history. Let me know what you think about this one. That's what we got time for tonight. Hope you enjoyed it. As usual, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you, I'm still not sure why this show successful. I'll see you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global
1: Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.